Welcome to Cognation. I'm your host, Rolf Nelson. And I'm Joe Hardy. On today's episode, uh, we're going to talk about a philosophical problem of the self. And uh, we're basing our discussion off of a paper by Derek Parfit, a philosopher. Uh, and the paper is entitled Divided Minds and the Nature of Persons. The topic that we're going to get into is a sort of fundamental questioning about the nature of the self. And the, the terminology that's used is bundle theory versus ego theory. So Joe, you want to start out uh, telling us a little bit about what the distinction between bundle theory and ego theory is? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I think when a lot of people hear the word ego, they think about Freud and his theories. Uh, and we're not talking about that in this context. What we're really talking about is ego in the sense of the subject of experience. So when I say I saw something or I heard something or I had a thought, um, the I in that statement, the subject of that experience is in this framework, the ego. And the idea of ego theory is that in order for a person to have a sense of a continuous stream of experiences over time that is part of the same set of experiences, the same conscious, uh, you know, conscious experience of the self, there needs to be a subject of that experience. And that subject of the experience is called the ego. So that's ego theory, that there's each person is defined by one ego. One, one person equals one ego, one subject of experience. As, over time, I'm able to interpret things in, in regards to my experiences over time because I'm the same person. Bundle theory basically says that that's wrong, that there is no singular subject of experiences within an individual within an individual, but rather there are simply a bundle, a collection of sensations, actions, thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And each of these states uh, essentially occur as dis somewhat discrete units over time. And they're essentially bundled together. And that bundle is what we call the experience, call the individual. Uh, so this is a little bit abstract at this in this level, but that's that's kind of the idea that do you have one subject of experience, which is ego theory, or do you have no subjects of experience, but rather just a collection of sensory states, subjective states that are bundled together within a physical organism that is an individual. Now, looking at this from sort of a, a larger lens, um, most people have intuitions about this. And I think if you were to ask people on the street, um, they might uh, probably come back with something like ego theory, which I would, I think is probably the most common, at least Western idea to, to hold about this. Um, ego theory is consistent with um, the idea of a soul, a continuous um, self that exists over time and can even um, exist beyond death. So uh, the soul is a, a kind of ego theory. Um, so I think this is sort of a natural place that most people might start. And it, it might be difficult to think of ourselves as divided in this way or not really connected or just sort of this uh, bundle of experiences. Uh, and the, uh, the first Western philosopher to talk about this, uh, and and this is where the term bundle theory comes from, was David Hume. So David Hume, um, you know, psychologists like to think of him as kind of like an early psychologist. He lived in you know the 1700s, uh, before the the um, field of psychology began. But he talked about a lot of things that psychologists really care about, um, where perceptions come from. Um, you know, the nature of the self, the nature of consciousness, a lot of these kinds of things. So I'm going to read just a little bit from uh, an essay from David Hume where he talks about um, uh, his reaction to other philosophers and, um, and, and his, he proposes this idea that we're, 
um, more a bundle of experiences. So he says, okay, and I'll start. So there are some philosophers who imagine at every moment, who imagine we are at every moment intimately conscious of what we call self, that we feel its existence and its continuance in existence, and are certain beyond the evidence of a demonstration, both of its perfect identity and simplicity. The strongest sensation, the most violent passion, they say, instead of distracting us from this view, only fix it more intently and make us consider their influence on self by either pain or pleasure. Okay, and then he says, um, what must become of our particular perceptions upon this hypothesis? Uh, all of these are different and distinguishable and separable from each other and may be separately considered and may exist separately. So these are these bundles, have no need of anything to support their existence. In what manner, therefore, do they belong to self, and how are they connected with it? For my part, when I enter most infinitely into what I call intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble stumble on some particular perception or other of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I can never catch myself at any time without a perception, and can never observe anything but the perception. Okay, and then. Um, and then he, he, he uh, further comes to this conclusion. He says, I may venture to affirm of the rest of mankind that they are nothing but a bundle of or collection of different perceptions, which succeed each other with, with inconceivable rapidity and are in a per per perpetual flux and movement. Um, so he goes on to um, further delineate this, but this is his main idea that... that um, most people, most philosophers, even have this have this um, central uh, concept of self that they that they uh, feel really truly exists in some way. And Hume just says, "No, I don't. I don't think that's how it works. Um, we're just a a collection of of perceptions, memories, ideas, um, beliefs, things like that. Um, and this happens in everyday life. Where where you know where there are many things going through our head, and and only uh, only one of them may make it to full consciousness, but there's a lot going on inside our head, and this is a, really not something that we should think of as just a, a single unit. Yeah, exactly. And this this comes up, you know, this is this Hume's view on this is kind of this idea that you know you might be you can walk and chew gum at the same time, for example. So you may be walking down the street and chewing gum, and you can do these two actions at the same time. You may not be conscious of both of these things. So is it actually, when you're not thinking about chewing gum, are you actually, is your, is, is your self, is there a self that is chewing gum, you know, or is it just that there is, these are just a bundle of different actions. You all the things you're seeing walk, you know, the, the cars on the street, um, you know, avoiding the cracks of the pot in the potholes, all these things are being done by the body uh, and by the, by the mind, if you will, but you're not conscious of them in that way. Is that all part of the self, or is there are these just separate actions and separate bundles of experiences and sensations? Hume would say they're separate. Uh, David Parfit would say they're separate. I guess it's a little bit like okay, so what? So what are the consequences of these different theories? And are, is there any way to kind of get at them from a neuroscient neuroscientific perspective? And is there any practical implication of that? And I think this is where Parfit's argumentation is super interesting. He starts off, he got interested in this, this question because he was looking at split brain patients and the whole split brain research. Um, and split brain uh, patients and this sort of field of psychology comes from the 1960s. Um, so Sperry was, uh, uh, and Sperry and Gazaniga were the you know sort of researchers most well known for this work. And what this comes from is there are a bunch of patients who had their corpus callosums cut. The corpus callosum is this bundle of fibers that con connects the two sides of the brain, the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain. And the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain, most of you probably know, uh, have somewhat separate functions. And so the reason why these, okay, so for, backing up for a second, the reason why these patients had these surgeries is that 
there was they had epilepsy, so very severe epilepsy, and the epilepsy, the, 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 this abnormal firing of neurons would bounce back and forth between the sides of the brain. And in order to circumvent that, to stop that, there was the surgery that, that you know I think this is still done sometimes today. Where people... Although I think it's rare, it's much more rare today because exactly for the reason you say that since they're trying to treat epilepsy, uh, that's a pretty it's a pretty crude measure just to split the brain in half and better localization means that you can find the actual um, you know, the yeah but sometimes they, they sometimes they actually need to remove an entire side of the brain yeah yeah and that's that another thing too well. yeah yeah that, yeah that. so so this is this is the thing that that happens in very severe epilepsy where the patient would be otherwise you know very severely um, disabled or or die otherwise and so the point is that you separate out. So the, the communication between the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain are, is disrupted. And what's interesting is that you can kind of essentially query the two hemispheres of the brain, the two sides of the brain separately, at least to a certain degree, experimentally, because the left hemisphere, the left side of the brain, controls the right side of the body. And the right hemisphere, the right side of the brain controls the left side of the body. And similarly for the visual field. So everything to the left of the midline is, in other words, the midline being the middle, like down from your nose, uh, everything to the left of, of, in your visual field is processed by the right side of your brain. And everything on to the right of the midline is processed by the left side of your brain. So you've got essentially everything that's happening on the left side of the world can be experienced and interacted with by the right side of the brain and vice versa. And these clever researchers actually figured out a way to like ask questions to the different sides of the brain. And they have argued experimentally and, and uh, you know, through, uh, through discourse that actually you can get separate experiences reported on by the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain. And the two different responses don't know about the other. So the left side of the brain doesn't know what the right side of the brain is seeing. And the right side of the brain doesn't know what the left side of the brain is seeing. And they actually comes up with, it creates some interesting conundrums and it raises, calls into question this idea that there's a single self or person or ego in that individual. So in the, I mean, in sort of the extreme interpretation of this, um, the idea is that when you sever the connection between the two hemispheres, you end up with two separate selves inside a brain. Yeah, exactly. Um, and do you want to, Ralph, do you want to describe like a version of one of these experiments just to make it very concrete? Yeah. So one version of these kinds of experiments would be, um, so you could, if you, if you flash an image to the left side of the visual field, it'll go to the right brain. Um, and so, like you said before, um, and if, if you flash an image to the right side of the visual field, it'll go to the left brain. And you have to flash these quickly enough so that people can't move their eyes over and take a look at it. So it just presents a static image. Okay, so... Um, one example of this is um, uh, flashing an image of, of some object that the left hemisphere, so flashing it to the, to the uh, let's see, so some object, the left hemisphere, so first of all, the left hemisphere is generally dominant in language. So what, one trick in these experiments is that it seems as though the left hemisphere can communicate via language, whereas the at right least, hemisphere- At least for right-handed people. At least, right, yeah, yeah, in, in general. Or is at least more um, facile in language, right? So if you present something to the just the right hemisphere, um, one example, uh, say a picture of a, a saw, for example, and then ask the person to, the split-brain patient, to say what they, what they saw, they might not be able to say it, and they say, I didn't say anything. And the idea is that would be the, the product of the left hemisphere language saying it didn't see anything. Nevertheless, if you give the person a pen and allow them to draw freely, 
they may draw something that looks like a saw or you know semantically related related maybe they'll draw a hammer or something like that yeah only with their left hand only with their left hand so it's as though just the right hemisphere is understanding this and drawing it out trying to communicate in some way uh and only after looking at their picture they would say oh it's a saw um because then they can verbalize it. So this seems to give a strong impression that it's as though there are two separate individuals inside, yeah. each with their full sort of sets of experiences. Yeah, and you can actually do this simultaneously. So like, say, for example, you had a saw and a hammer. Hmm. One was presented to the, left hemis to, the, to the left visual field, and one was presented to the right visual field. Um, let's say that the right visual field saw the hammer, and the left... Uh, visual field saw the saw. Uh, you ask the person what they saw, they would say hammer. Because the, the auditory. Now, when is, you're saying the person, you mean the left hemisphere. You ask. Well, the, the, but the, the also person, the person, too. The, 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 the one thing that is able to speak and make. The individual's mouth focus, would, yeah. <laughs> which, would emit. Which presumably the word. is con being controlled by their language dominant left hemisphere. Yeah. yeah the hammer. And then, but the, there may be an opportunity where that person using their other hand their non-dominant hand, their left hand, they may be able to select uh, the saw or may be able to draw it. So they may actually, there may be some sense in which there were two separate experiences that were both reportable, but in disagreement about what the individual experienced. And I think Gazaniga's interpretation of this, so one of the uh, researchers who did a lot of this early work on split brain patients. One of his interpretations was that the left brain is the one that's conscious or the interpreter for the the whole brain. It, it uh, and the right brain was not able to express itself and didn't possess a sort of consciousness. And you could also this is it's it's tough to um, decide exactly what's going on. Are there are there is there one person inside that brain? Are there two people inside that brain? Uh, and then Derek Parfit says, well, no, there's actually no people, no persons inside that brain. Exactly. Yeah. So, so Parfit uh, provocatively says the number of persons, you know, in having that experience is zero. Uh, so there's this question, is it two people? Is it one people person? No, it's, it's zero people uh, having that experience. So the idea is that the and that's a strong, I think he's, when he says that, it's just, he's being a strong bundle theorist. In exactly. Not that you've suddenly destroyed, you know, experiences that there never were, there never was a person in the first place. There never was just a single person, just as, as each individual that we think of isn't just a single person. Right, exactly. And so it's, it's really, the, it's not that there isn't an experience or there aren't a set of experiences, is that there's no singular reducible subject of the experience. Uh, and so I think it's just, I don't, we're, obviously in this conversation, we're not going to be able to resolve this, right? Like this, we don't have the answer for you. And so, but I think it's, it's really just interesting to problematize the idea of the ego in the sense of a singular subject of experience that's continuous over time for a lot of reasons. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons is that you know, this idea that we feel very strongly, at least I think many of us do, I certainly do, have a very strong sense that I am a continuous self over time and that the person who did things in the past is the same me that is doing things now. And my memories belong to me in some meaningful yeah, that sense. Yeah, two-year-old Joe Hardy, even when he didn't really know what was going on with the world, is still the same fundamentally the same person as you right now right exactly exactly as opposed to i mean if you were to if that two-year-old joe hardy were to come and hang out with you right now you probably wouldn't see a whole lot of similarities and you'd see that you know that its experiences are probably a lot different than yours but you still identify strongly with that continuous sense of self yeah and, and a lot of it is tied up in memory too right it, it's tied up in two things language and memory and I think also people are individually a little bit different in terms of how much their reported sense of self has to do with language. I mean, for me, for me personally, it, I have a very strong internal dial. I have a very strong sense of an internal dialogue. So I'm, I'm constantly talking to myself, hearing myself, talking mm -hmm. to myself. 
sometimes, you know, just on and on and on. So it, sometimes it's extremely unhelpful. <laughs> right, right. That's an interesting <laughs> that, point. That's an interesting point, though, that internal dialogue is sometimes what gives you, what may give you that sense of self, right? Because you're talking I, I, to for someone. Me, for me, 100%. Someone's talking. For me, that's 100% what it is. That's 100% what I, my sense of self is 100% that internal dialogue of this ongoing conversation that I am having with myself. And the memory of past conversations or, or past experiences that have been processed through that in some sense. So it's really when I when I when I think of like the the self or the ego, I really think of that narrative self. I sometimes use the term narrative self because it's like that continuous mm-hmm. story that you're telling yourself about yourself. You know, and this relates a little bit to our episode with Chris Beatty a few few episodes back where we talked a little bit about um, narrative continuity and whether you feel as though your life is sort of like a story, like it's a continuous narrative like that, yeah, or whether yeah, it's just yeah. this disjointed set of of episodes that sort of happen. So in a way, I think bundle theory is, is a little bit like that. And I, I think you can get individuals that feel as though their life is know, maybe experienced as a very coherent whole or feel as though it's very disjointed. So people can have different opinions on this based on their their individual experiences too. Yeah. And and I think it wasn't, wasn't Beatty the one who said that he felt like it was more disjointed, like a set of experiences? We have to go back and listen we'll to that to episode back, to be sure to about the, that. We encourage our, our listeners to go back and listen to it also. But I think David Hume seems to be in that category uh, of folks who feel like a little bit more separated you know into that it may that may feel like what his experience is like right and maybe that's partially just on closer examination too different Um, ways of looking at it personality type but a you know upon examination yeah no absolutely and i I mean i've i've been exploring that sense as well in terms of just trying to think about what you know well we'll get back to that uh i think we talk should we talk any more about other other kinds of neuroscience that that uh, have something to say about um, bundle versus ego theory? Absolutely. I mean, one one aspect of it uh, in neuroscience that I think about is parallel processing. Hmm. So the idea that you are able to process simultaneously the whole visual field, take in that information, everything that you're hearing, everything that you're feeling in your body, and all of these things you can prove that there's some of that is being processed. So for example, if you flash a stimulus in the upper corner of your visual field, you will orient towards it. You know, it's not all the time, but often you'll, you'll look towards it or you move towards it to see what's there. Now, otherwise you would have no idea that there's anything there. You have not, I mean, not conscious. There's parts of the visual field that you're basically never consciously aware of as being visual in that sense. Most of your visual field, right? So at most times, this is something most people are probably not entirely aware of, that you're really only consciously aware of a very small portion of your vision at any one time. And and that part of it that actually gets processed into something like a memory is much, much smaller even than that. So the part that you're seeing is is smaller than the whole of possible inter- interaction, but you know the part that you then actually process it that would be part of that narrative that goes forward is tiny. But that's the um, that's one of those bun- there's one little bundle that's kind of um, noticing those things in the upper corner, not consciously, and then eventually that makes it to consciousness at some point. Yeah, and this, so this gets into this idea of attention and how mm-hmm. attention is important for our feeling or sense of consciousness, right? So you know, as you uh, body scan is another great example. If you do a, a meditation, yeah. like a body scan where you, you, you attend to different parts of your body, starting at the top of your head or starting at your feet, starting at the top of your head, then, you, you know, feeling your eyes, your face, your upper body, and, and all the way down, you realize that you have a set, you can experience a set of sensations of each part of your body that you just normally don't, unless there's something impinging it with pain or, or, you know, pressure or something like that. I think there's a lot in neuroscience that supports bundle theory. And I think, I mean, in my thinking, just about everything in neuroscience supports bundle theory because we, you know, we think of the brain as decomposable into all of these different parts and all of these different processes, like you said, that are going on in parallel. Every module that does some specific thing in our brain from, you know, face recognition to specialized visual processing or audio processing, 
you know, all those are, are kind of bundles of processing of, of events or things that are going on in our brain separately that we're not aware of or that we're sometimes aware of and sometimes not aware of. Sadly, you see this in something like Alzheimer's, where you see mental facilities go to something that you might consider integral to yourself, like, you know, your, you know, your personal memories, your, um, you know, all of your mental faculties as they go one by one, um, you see that they may not be uh, just a single unitary thing, and they may be um, independent kinds of processes that, that formulate ourself. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, this kind of gets into a little bit into, um, you know, this sense of no self, hmm. which, uh, it, this is a Buddhist a, sort of a, this, in the, the Buddhist, Buddhist sense. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a, there's a Buddhist kind of view of this, which is always something puzzling to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to describe with language yeah. or language it gets to this whole point that our idea of ego, our sense of self, the narrative self is a language construction largely mm. is my, it's, that's the way I'm, I'm thinking about it right now anyway. Um, but it, so it's just hard to talk about with words because our words are built around this thing, yeah, this yeah. process, this ability that is constructing itself is constructed to create a sense of continuity uh, over time. So the language is built into that. But the Buddha talks about this idea of uh, no self. Actions do exist and also their consequences, but the person that acts does not. There is no one to cast away this set of elements and no one to assume a new set of them. There exists no individual. It is only a conventional name given to a set of elements. So the idea is that it's not that there is not consciousness it's just that the individual self as an experiencer of that consciousness does not exist when understood correctly it actually in a there's a way in which this actually relates back to kant because mm -hmm. kant says you can't experience the thing in itself mm -hmm. you only have the sensation mm -hmm. that's, that's right yeah yeah yeah, right. That's a good it's this, connection. It's kind too. of a similar. It's not Kant, another thing. another sort of early psychologist. I think of him as another kind of early. Talks yeah, yeah. About a lot of it's not exactly the same thing, but it, it's kind of hitting at the same vibe, right? Which is that like the world is filtered through your brain. That's right. And your experience of that is your brain kind of telling you that you are a thing that is singular and exists separate from everything else. That's the difference where, where Buddha brings it back to like, actually everything's kind of the same. Everything's kind of part of the was, same th whole. This, this is where I get stuck in the in some of the language games here because, um, and you just said, this is your brain telling you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's no there's way another, to describe it with words. Yeah. There's no way to describe it. We don't have the language to describe that. We can make up words, but it would just be, it would make this podcast impenetrable. Yeah, so I think, you know, from that perspective, like Kant and, and Buddha kind of agree that like there, you know, to the extent that there is something essential, a thing in itself, uh, a true reality, a true existence, we're not, our individual egoic self does not experience that or does not actually exist. I mean, that's that's kind of bundle theory. So again, why, why who cares? Well, there's actually a bunch of interesting consequences that result from how you think about that. I mean, one of the ways that, that I find particularly interesting um, is in the world of just psychology and psychotherapy. So like psychology from the perspective of like, are you doing well? Are you not doing well from, you know, mental health and wellness perspective. One of the interesting findings from the world of psychedelic assisted uh, therapy is that when you do high dose psychedelics in an appropriately uh, controlled environment with the right supports and so on and so forth. A consistent finding is that people experience what is called mm. ego dissolution. And now this is maybe this can go from, you know, this is a very common experience. Um, and it's also there's it's graded, it's dose dependent. So uh, I think it, it I'll describe that sort of the lower dose kind of experiences and then 
I, I can't really describe the higher dose experiences because they're not describable, but um, at least not with the current line with our, with our existing language, but you know, at the lower doses, what's reported is in the literature is something like uh, a, an increased sense of unitariness, unitive experience is sometimes referred to as unitive experience. So you feel like there's less separation between yourself and the other people that you're with. There's less separation between yourself and the world around you. You feel more connected to the natural environment, to nature, to the, to the universe. And at the extremes of this, it's been reported uh, that people have a sense of total unity. And this happens, this is a this is also something that happens in mystical type experiences in, in religious contexts and other in near-death experiences, other experiences like that, where people have a have a sense of like total connection to everything. Why does our brain not why is this not our default way of thinking? And in other words, our brain imposes this idea of self on us. And of you know, of course, this seems important, right? Maybe. We should be, you know, if we want to, if, if, you know, evolutionarily we want to continue our existence, um, we should distinguish what we are from the external world and make sure that we're protecting ourselves and, and doing everything we can to, pr to promote the continued existence of that self as, as our brain is helping define it. So, you know, <laughs> I guess yeah, I well, I mean, like, I think you know, it could be negative. It could be a negative thing. Uh, losing all boundaries to you know to the external world, I, you know, because it 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 wouldn't promote a kind of selfish behavior, I guess, right? Well, I, yeah, th I think there's a lot to unpack there. What you just said, it's, I think it's really it's a good point. Uh, I mean, there's the different levels. First point is like where I, where I was coming at this from was, that I think the additional point is that people then find that that experience of the unitive mm -hmm. experience is beneficial for them psychologically, meaningful and beneficial. This is often reported um, so that people you know, subsequently feel like less depressed, uh, for example, less anxious, better able to integrate certain traumatic experiences. Well, there is something to the idea that the ego, and, and I think you can connect the idea of ego theory with a Freudian idea of this too. There is something to the idea that the ego can get in our way. In a, in a oh yeah, a hundred percent, a 100%. I mean, it's this whole thing of, I mean, not to get too down, far down into like the Buddhist thing, but, you know, this sense that, you know, of attachment, mm -hmm. right? So the idea that suffering is part of mm -hmm. the experience of being an in, like an individual self or having the illusion of being an individual self. So it's it's tied up in that, right? Which is, I want something and that wanting something uh, is a craving, you know, this is a, an attachment to a thing or, 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 you know, that I want, let's say I want, mm -hmm. a, I, this is one that I've been thinking about this week was like, I would really love to have a lake house, a house on a lake in Maine, you know, be wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, so I was at a house on a lake in Maine this week and enjoying it. Uh, but I was not fully enjoying it because I was wishing that I owned it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, so that's, I was there actually experiencing the enjoying the it thing. as much as you possibly could be enjoying it. Yet your ego is still getting in the way because you totally wanna... it's like I, I, I there's no sense in which I could have been more there than I was actually there physically. But I wasn't entirely 100 percent there because I was thinking about, oh, I don't own this. I have a sense of a, a sense of loss of the fact that I have to leave and that I, I can't come back to that exact spot whenever I want because I don't own it. So that that's it's kind of just an example of the ego at, attaching itself. Yeah. In a totally unhelpful way, completely. Yeah. There's no sense in which that helps me in any way, right? So, but those kinds of little attachments, and this, you can play this game out in a million different ways. But those little sense of attachments to I want, I need, I am, I, you know, I do, blah blah blah, to the extent that they're not just you taking an action in the world, are not and not helpful in any way. But they actually cause pain and and anxiety and stress and suffering and all that. Yeah, yeah. So in some sense, that sense of an attachment to myself as a continuous ongoing thing that is important, that matters, 
Oh, well, let's talk about death. I mean, the fa- the fact that I'm scared of dying. Mm-hmm. Who is the I that is dying, right? If that I doesn't exist, then death is a very different thing. Yeah, I think this is one of the conclusions that Parfit takes out of it, too, is his overall viewpoint. And it takes a little bit to come to where he's where he's thinking of this stuff is that we shouldn't be concerned with our personal demise because, well, it's it's hard to say 100% why, because we're a bundle of experiences and, and there's no central eye that will be dying. Um, in his view, you know, we're changing from day to day so much that it's like a little bit of death. You know, we're experiencing the death of small bundles of ourselves as we stop, you know, doing cer- yeah. certain sorts of things and, you know, change over time. The 12-year-old Rolf is gone. <laughs> it's not yeah. coming back, right? Yeah. There's no sense. There's no way to get back to that 12-year-old Rolf. That's right. It's gone. Yeah. It's dead in, in that sense. Well, this gets us into the teletransportation thing, which I think That's we right. should definitely hit because I, I love this. And we've talked, I experiment. believe we've talked about this a little bit before, but this we is- We have, but we've, we've, got, we've, cut, we've made some progress. And so I think we, it's worth re- revisiting it because I think we've got a little bit more to say about it now. Yeah, so this is Parfit's thought experiment that he's famous for. Um, and it comes in a couple different versions, but the basic idea- and you can see this applied all different ways to different kinds of science fiction. The basic idea is um, imagine that you are being teletransported. You go through a transporter. The pattern of your body is copied uh, and then duplicated in another place, say Mars, right? Sent off somewhere and duplicated in another place. And your original body is destroyed. Yeah, so critically in this, in this thought experiment, I don't know how it works in Star, in Star Trek. But like in this particular version, all the cells and all the patterns and yeah. states are replicated, but they're not. They're, the originals are all destroyed. Right. The original and the originals are all destroyed. And there's different. There's all different versions of this. But I mean, this is the this is exactly the same thing as um, being uh, uploaded to a computer, right? The idea is that your pattern of um, no, it's not exactly the same because in this case you actually there is a body that is created. It's not exactly the same. Well, because you know, if in the sense of it gets into the whole embodied cognition thing, right, right. So I think having a body there that is exactly like your body, I think, is kind of important in a way. I will say that um, if you go back, you actually see these some of these kinds of things as early as uh, John Locke even talks about some of this stuff. He has. Uh, and this is, it's kind of just like a Freaky Friday thing, right? What happens if the soul of one person enters into another person? Which, you know, whose identity is it? Uh, he uses an example of the prince and the cobbler. So if a prince enters in somehow into the cobbler's consciousness, you know, what is that body? Is it the prince or is it the cobbler? So he has that identi- identity um, question. But, okay, so for, so for the teletransporter argument... You're destroyed and replicated somewhere else. In Star Trek, this is no problem, right? Because the narrative tells us you are disappearing here and you are reappearing somewhere else. Well, what if it's actually the fact that you are being destroyed here and a copy of you is being recreated somewhere else that's not physically, spatiotemporally contiguous with you? Are you satisfied that... Um, you know, is this a problem for you that you're <laughs> personally you're dead, but there's a copy that has every every ass, you know, it has it'll continue everything, it'll act as though it's you, it'll respond in the same way. Parfit says no, it doesn't matter because it's psychologically continuous with us. That is yeah, it's, it's just a bundle of experiences. It's just a bundle of experiences and all of those things even though they're not it's not even that's not a problem it's just not even a a question it's just you know it's it's another bundle that's somewhere else and to the outside world nothing would have changed it would it would be the same as if you had been transported to that place yeah so being destroyed and being replicated exactly would be the same as being destroyed yeah and in parfit's view it's in the ego theory you should be really concerned Mm -hmm. because your continuous narrative self has been you know that ego has been destroyed the the physical sense of that has been destroyed uh and then a new one has been created the replica has been created he goes through an interesting exercise in this particular version of his of the discussion which is that 
that I think helps elucidate this. Because I think the way it was described there, it's a little hard to grapple. I think it's easy for everyone to sort of say, oh, it's actually probably pretty fine. I feel pretty okay with that. But Mm. I think it's interesting to think about what percentage of the parts of the body need to be replicated. I mean, it need to be like preserved in the new version to feel like it's actually the same person. So like if you do that, and it seems as though it matters to people whether you do this slowly or quickly. So if you were to say replace one neuron of the brain at a time with, you know, an electronic component or something like this, so that in, you know, in five years, eventually you would be entirely made out of silicon. Are you the same self? You're acting the same. Nobody notices the difference. Um, and right. it's been gradual enough versus if it happens instantly all at once where there's a complete destruction and then recreation. Does that matter? And that seems to matter to some people. Um, does the percentage matter? Maybe at, you know, you know if yeah, 1% of your body yeah. was, was like replaced. Cyborgy, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, most people would say that's totally fine. Yeah. Uh, is it, what, what is it like 50.1% is the same person, you know, at, at what point? And then it, you start to get into the physics of it. You realize that actually a lot of your, like the molecules in your body are being swapped out. You know, the organelles are being, you know, updated, reproduced, recreated, you know, cells are dying and being produced. So there's a sense in which that's happening all the time anyway. Does that, is that important for the continuity of yourself? So I think when, in, in this case of, for me, I feel totally cool about being transported and recreated. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I don't know how you could, <laughs> I don't know how you could say that. Totally. See, Ralph doesn't, doesn't feel <laughs> okay. I feel strongly about this. And maybe that, maybe that means I'm an ego theorist. Maybe that means that I have to commit myself, but I just have this strong reaction that it would be the, it would be the death of me. And that's what I care about. It's, you know, what what I when I was thinking about this for for this episode, what what struck me as the hard thing to think about is the sense of because the question is, am I dying? Right. And what does that mean? So like I'm I, I think part of it is that I yeah I, we I get in there's a whole another podcast about why I, I'm less interested in that now, but like in terms of like it's less concerning than than it might have been, and it does relate to this bundle theory, but. I think that in terms of just how to think about it, it's hard for me to imagine how you would know. So in other words, if I'm, so I'm here now, I'm having this thought, I have all these memories, right? And then there's a discontinuity. I'm projected to another place. The, 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 the entity, the, the, what's called the replica for now, the replica in the new place Let's call it, you know, just for the sake of, you know, make it less crazy, like Nebraska. <laughs> um, this the, the the replica in Nebraska has all the same memories, has all the same thoughts, proclivities, you know, tendencies, has all the same friendships, community, all that stuff. So for me, it's like, how would you, how would that replica know some sense that it's not me? Oh, it couldn't. It wouldn't. It would think that was you. So I, that's the sense that we, to me, it's like, it's kind of trivially like fine in that way. And I think what, but what, what I got into thinking about a little bit more was that how that sense, two things, like one is the sense that like, how do I know that the past me was really me? Hmm. Oh, you mean, so, okay. So how do you know that you're not being deceived? You're not a brain in a vat kind of thing. Yeah, but I mean, just more trivially, like in the sense of this bundle theory versus ego theory, it's like, how is there a sense in which that I am the same person that I was a minute ago, a year ago, ten years ago? Well, that's I, a, I think that's a real the, sense in which it's, it is not the same person. And that's I, one of the scary things I think about thinking about the tra- teletransport argument is that you may think, well, okay, is there really a big difference between teletransportation and just going to sleep and waking up the next morning? Mm-hmm. Or being unconscious for some amount of time, or or as up. we're saying, like all of our atoms in our body being replaced over time, you know, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think that's that's kind of that's where it gets interesting. And there's no, obviously there's no answer, right? There's no there's no there's no right answer here. But I think that's where it starts to get. There's like some interest if you just kind of really work on that thought of like, how do what would that be like to be that replica 
And then what happens to this, you know, if this body, if this version of me dies, what is that like? See, I, I, I say that's not like anything because that's your physical death and then there's no, there's nothing yeah. that's like. Well, that's, that's part of the difference maybe. But the, the, I mean, the other thing that, that in terms of the unitive sense, right, the sense of like being, you know, so there's the bundle theory, which is just that like there's lots of different pieces of, of the consciousness and the conscious experience. There's no single subjective experience or it that's an ego. But there's also the sense of just the unitive component, which is like actually consciousness is actually just one thread, one uh, resonance of this greater thing that exists in the universe, this greater, let's call it consciousness for whatever. It's not the right word, but you know, there's no word for it, right? This, hmm. this greater unitive existence. And in that sense, your role in that greater unit of existence if if you're replicated perfectly and you have all the same friendships loves you know history all that is totally preserved mm -hmm. uh, that's why i think the physical body being replicated is important because like if it's just a brain in a vat i feel like it's different that's that's very different because you don't you're not able to you don't have the same affordances yeah uh where the, that's why the replica thing just doesn't bother me it's because like the role in the universe is the same it hasn't changed now, where it gets now, now the second problem, okay. Now, let's say you don't destroy the replica, right? You so that's the that's the what Parfait calls the branch line case. We've got two of you existing at the same time. How does Which that one feel? is you? <laughs> How does that feel to you? Does that feel well, yeah, okay? Exactly. The first question is just like, which of those is you? Yeah. Is the is the replica less you than the original you, or are they equally you but just different? That's where just our concepts begin to break down. And I think I think this also prefigures a lot of ideas within artificial intelligence too. Um, because an artificial intelligence can be replicated easily. And I mean, if there ever is artificial intelligence that, you know, you know may have something approaching consciousness or a sense of self, um, it's gonna be a very different kind of self than we have. Um, because it exists differently over time. Um, it's really, I mean, it, you know, large language models right now don't really, they're not really active in the same way our brains are active all the time. So it's a very different sense of self. Um, but, you know, the idea that, you know, a self could be replicated infinitely. You know, in artificial intelligence, that's possible. It's already possible to replicate something, whether it has consciousness, we don't know. Um, so that's going to come quicker than a teletransporter that can do any of these kinds of things like Parfit is talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think that's where these questions are going to be sort of relevant too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Then, yeah. So then I think that's, 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 a, that's a topic for another conversation because that really gets into the, the thing of other selves. Cause here we've been, mm. pro we've been problematizing our own self, our mm -hmm. own ego or lack thereof. Uh, and then this gets into the question of if there, this whole idea that we have, this feeling, this felt sense that if, the, if, a, if another being is conscious or has a, a, an ego or a self, that, that their existence is somehow more worthy or worthwhile than otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or important in some way, uh, which is I think is a separate but related concept. Do you have any other thoughts about this before we wrap things up, Joe? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I just think that, um, it's really helpful as we think about our concerns and our worries and our hopes and our dreams to have a framework for thinking about who or what is worrying or thinking or hoping and that that exploration of that can be very helpful in reducing some of those especially negative aspects in terms of worries and fears and things like that i often come back to like whether a theory is useful and i think that that's where like the bundle approach it, to me is is somewhat more useful hmm. in the sense that like not being attached that there's some importance to my ongoing egoic experience as a continuous uh line uh that has like a, like a victory state 
you know, like a goal state, releasing that, letting go of that sense of ego, I, I find to be extremely helpful. Well, I find that philosophically I can buy into bundle theory um, and I can, and certainly through the neuroscience that it all makes a lot of sense. But I think there is definitely some feature of my brain that's, that's encouraging me to, to believe <laughs> that I have an ego, <laughs> that, that there is something there and that I need to protect uh, at all times. I mean, I think, I mean, in a sense, I can see, I can see the correctness of both viewpoints in a way that, of course, there's, there's not going to be anything, any such thing as an indivisible self, right? That the self has to be composed of something, at, at least as far as we're thinking about it as made of, you know, physical material and not something immaterial. From a naturalistic point of view, you almost have to buy bundle theory. But on the other hand, you can also, I mean, this is the gestalt psychologist in me, you can also see that um, you could, that it's it's just saying that things are composed of smaller things doesn't invalidate the some of the larger truths, right? That That there's no reason we can't talk about sort of a virtual self or a virtual ego, that there's something that emerges from this bundle. I mean, we talk about consciousness emerging from the brain, uh, and we can think about the self as emerging from the brain as a as a you know there's something different about all of the parts when they're put together a certain way. I I don't think I'm going to weigh down on one side or the other as being absolutely correct, but it is an it is an interesting way to talk about it, and I think it's it's um, illuminating to think about it in these terms, and it probably calls into question some of the ideas that we hold in everyday life yeah no absolutely well i, I have a million more thoughts on this but yeah, me yeah too. this is one of those things that you, you just starts in one one place and you can take it in any direction so well, i'm sure I, we'll I, come back to it at some i'm sure we'll come back to it another time too yeah and it would be good to it would be good to you know bring on some experts in different aspects of this and to lead us in different directions but yeah let's leave it there for now thank you thanks everyone for for listening again and um I guess we should do the how to get in touch with us thing. Um, so we have a Twitter, uh, well, X. X, now. X. <laughs> Whatever, X. X. <laughs> uh, um, so, you know, my uh, Twitter handle is uh, JL Hardy, um, at JL Hardy PhD. We also have at NationCog. You can also just type in Cognation. I think it finds us. And, uh, Cognation podcast at gmail.com. Feel free to just send us an email if you've got any suggestions or ideas for the show. Yeah, we've got we've gotten some great uh, input there from people suggesting uh, people they'd like to have on the show, and it's been super helpful. So if you want to be on the show or you know someone who you think would be great to have on the show, uh, please reach out. If you have topics you'd like us to discuss, uh, do that as well. So uh, thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. Thank you.